welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Did you notice our sign out in front? It says, the good shepherd idea. God takes the initiative. That's that's the concept. Luke 19, verse 10. The Son of Man is come to, what does it say? Seek and to save that which is lost. And so rather than waiting for us to seek him and for us to do something right so that he can save us, on the other hand, he is trying to seek us and he's seeking to save us. And so this is part of the good news of the message of that Elijah that is to be proclaimed in these final days of earth's history. And it's really good news, better news than we have ever thought. Sometimes we think this way. For example, consider the basic theme that kind of goes through revival meetings, meetings that are aiming at revival and reformation, that we go to maybe a big public gathering maybe an evangelistic meeting, and we are exhorted to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And what that means is that we must do several things. Probably one of them is to read the Bible, pray, and witness to our faith in Jesus Christ. And that theme is played upon. Maintain your relationship with the Lord by praying, reading your Bible, and witnessing to the Lord which means that you get up in the morning and you read something devotionally and then you pray. And these are the cures for, the cures for spiritual malady then is to work for others. And it is true, 100%, that a Christian will love to read his Bible. A Christian will love to commune with God. A Christian will love to share what they know about Jesus. But maintaining a relationship, theology, a saving relationship, if that is one's concept of salvation, then it has to do with mutual obligations, that if we do our part, then God will do his part. And what happens if we don't do our part, if we slip up, if we make a mistake? And then uh, it seems like uh, we fall down and uh, it, it all falls apart. And here's where we often fall down. We forget or we get too busy maybe to do it. And then it seems like the Lord is far away. And of course, all of the problem is our fault. And then enters in guilt. The natural human state, apart from a distinct miracle that comes from the love of God, Paul says, is enmity with God. The natural human heart is alienated from God. Anybody who thinks he never has had this problem is misinformed. For we all at once live, Paul says, in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of body and mind. And so we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were born 
alienated from God. We were born with a nature that only our mothers and fathers could impart to us, which inclined us to sin. And so the only way that that can be reversed is by God bestowing his love upon us, and then we become the children of God. And his seed of agape love is planted in us. A good way to start getting this buried wrath out of our systems, wrath that is against God and alienation from him, is to discover this truth that it, that it is indeed uh, easy to be saved and hard to be lost. This is the truth that the Bible teaches. And we get this squarely from our Savior himself in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. So I invite you to open your Bibles there. And let's see if Jesus really means what he says in Matthew chapter 11 and verses 28 and 29. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke, he says, is what? Easy, and my burden is light. I understand that when animals were yoked together, two oxen to plow a field, usually they would put a a larger ox with a smaller ox. They would yoke a big ox with a small ox. Now, who do you suppose did the larger share of the work? The big ox. And what did the little ox do? Just followed along and didn't drag his feet and didn't hinder the work of the big ox, right? Now, in our yoking with Jesus, who's the big ox? Jesus does the heavy work, doesn't he? And if we don't hinder him and we follow him, It is easy to be saved and hard to be lost. Human nature seems intent on believing that Jesus' yoke is hard. Many feel that being a true Christian is fiendishly difficult undertaking, takes a heroic achievement that only a few people can ever hope to realize. And naturally, such an idea discourages multitudes who may want to follow Jesus. But let's look at another example. At the Apostle Paul, he reports about his personal conviction, conversation with God on his way to Damascus. And in those days, Paul, of course, was not known as the Apostle Paul, but he was known as Saul. And he was really hell-bent on a furious mission to stamp out Christianity. And furthermore, he was funded by the church leaders there in Jerusalem to do this. Uh, Public opinion was with him, and everybody was on his side. Now, did Paul or Saul find it easy to persecute Christians? Outwardly, maybe, but wait a minute. We might assume that he was on a toboggan ride to hell in his way of living, but the same Jesus who tells us that his yoke is easy told Saul that it was actually going to be hard for him to do this. And you find that in Acts chapter 26 and verses 12 and onwards. There Paul is describing to the king Agrippa about his conversion, how he was traveling there on the Damascus road. And it says, A great light shone to me from above at noonday when the sun was burning down on us. And it says, Then I heard a voice saying to me in the Jewish language, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This was Jesus speaking to him. 
Then Jesus says, it's hard for you, this kicking against the goad. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, the fact is that God loved this Saul. The poor man was hell-bent. But the obstacles were placed in the supposed superhighway to hell, not the path to heaven. And sinner Saul was just meeting up with all kinds of inner difficulties that made his way hard. The Holy Spirit loved him so much that he constantly pressed into his soul the conviction of sin. And day and night, Saul felt the goad. What you're doing is wrong, Saul. Turn, stop, turn around. There is danger ahead in the pathway upon which you are pursuing. So no way did the Holy Spirit allow Saul to slide unhindered down a greased runway to perdition. In order for him to go on in his mad campaign against Christ, Saul would have had to repress and to stop all of these convictions and promptings of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord loves Saul so much that he actually made it hard for Saul to destroy himself. Amen. Now, when Saul became the Apostle Paul, he never forgot that lesson. He had discovered some really good news. And the Lord loves us no less than he loved that wayward man of old. Because Christ, we are told, is the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So Jesus gives himself to every sinner who comes into this world. The Holy Spirit does not restrict this good work to just a handful of chosen favorite people that God has, but we are told that the Holy Spirit will reprove the world of sin, will convict the whole world of sin. God desires all men to be saved, the Bible tells us. And as an example of Paul's irrepressible good news, consider Galatians 5.17. Some people read Galatians 5.17 and they misunderstand it, but it's really a good news text. Let's look at it together. They conclude the opposite of what it's really trying to say. It reads this from the Revised Standard Version, Galatians 5.17. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would. Now, I suppose there's two ways to understand this. The evil that the flesh prompts us to do is so strong that even the Holy Spirit is powerless to help us and we simply simply cannot do the good things that he would have us to do. Or we could understand this, the good that the Holy Spirit prompts the believer to do becomes such a powerful motivation that the flesh loses its tyrannical control over him and the Holy Spirit actually prevents the believer in Christ from doing the evil things that he would otherwise be programmed to do. I believe the latter. Because explanation number one is bad news. As long as you have flesh in which you live, 
According to that interpretation, you're doomed just to repeat it over and over and over again, bad, uh, to fall into sin. And that's what many feel forced to believe. Their experience constantly seems to reinforce this idea, for they find the flesh that they're dealing with on a daily basis is an all-powerful force. Illicit love, sensuality, addictions to appetite and drugs and alcoholism and uh, materialism just for them, seems to be beating back the Holy Spirit in their life. And temptation just makes them cave in repeatedly. Surely the Lord's heart, I know, goes out to them. He knows how many times they have stained their pillows with tears as they review their daily failures. But on the other hand, explanation number two emerges as the best good news that one could imagine the text is really saying that the Holy Spirit is actually doing the work of resisting the flesh. He is against the flesh. And whereas we may have thought that obstacles impeded our path to heaven, making it as difficult as possible to get there, the reality is that he sets up obstacles, God sets up obstacles on our way to perdition. He does. The Holy Spirit is stronger than your temptations to sin. That's what the text is really saying. Every moment, every day, the Holy Spirit is making his influence apparent against the flesh, against these promptings of the sinful natures. With our consent, he completely defeats them all. With our consent. He spends as much time with each one of us individually in this constant striving against evil as if you were the only person on earth. And the Holy Spirit can do that because he is 100% divine. He is infinitely divine. That's why he can make you infinitely number one in his life. Now, there's no question about which one of these explanations of this verse is the correct one. Because when allowed to speak in context, the Bible unhesitatingly says that it's the good news one for alone, it alone is in harmony with Jesus' words about himself that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It's because he knows that the mighty Holy Spirit does the lifting of the heavy weight that he assures us, my burden is light. I'll tell you, he's willing to take your burden. Whatever your burden is, that persistent temptation to which you constantly give in to, that is your burden, isn't it? That weights you down. And Jesus says, my burden is light. He's going to exchange your burden. He's going to take that upon himself, and he's going to give you his light burden. So don't be fooled into thinking that when you are converted that your sinful nature will never again prompt you to do evil things. You know, folks who are newly baptized say, well, now that means that my old nature is completely gone away and I'm never going to be tempted again. And I see some of you folk who have been in the way for a while shaking your heads no because you've come to the realization that Though you have been baptized, there is still a nature inside of you that tempts you to do wrong. 
correct? But there's good news. And that is that Jesus, when he was crucified, his crucifixion was infinitely greater than any crucifixion of self that you will go through when he asks you to follow him. And thus, his burden is easy for you. We're not going to have holy flesh until Jesus comes. We're not going to get out of being tempted until the Lord comes. But the good news is that we can be crucified to self with Jesus Christ every day. And it is the normal Christian life to realize this about yourself. Never trusting in yourself, but wholly leaning upon Jesus. A converted person is temptable, maybe even more so than before they were converted. But Jesus himself was one who was in every respect. The Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we are. If there was a person on earth who walked this earth who was ever converted, would you say it was Jesus Christ? And I say that loosely because Jesus didn't need to be converted. (laughs) He came with his holy mind intact, didn't he? But he took our sinful flesh of temptation and overcame it, you see. So Jesus was infinitely tempted, all the way up to the end of his life, to crucifixion. If Jesus was tempted all the way up to the end of his life, you are going to be tempted too as a converted Christian, all the way up until the end of your life or until Jesus comes. But the good news is that the Holy Spirit is more powerful than your flesh of temptation. The one who follows Christ has the same sinful flesh that he always had, but he's no longer a slave to gratify the desires of the flesh. We have someone on our side who is more than a Savior in just name alone. Because Paul says in Romans chapter 8, 3, that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus literally outlawed sin in our flesh that tempts us. Aren't you so glad of that? He outlawed it. He said it, can't, it doesn't need to exist there. And the same is true for you, dear heart, who follow Jesus. Sin does not need to exist in your flesh that is tempted. He will give you the victory. Well, someone may ask, how come I never knew this before? How come I never knew this? I've wasted years while laboring under a misapprehension. Well, there is an enemy, a very masterful-minded enemy out there who is scheming to pervert and to obscure the pure, true gospel so that he has twisted it actually into bad news and got people to believing it, that it is easy to be lost and hard to be saved. That is the devil's gospel. If you are beginning now ever so slightly to see that God in a different light as one who is on your side more than you ever imagined before, then can you be glad for that revelation? Be glad for it. Almost everybody these days has the feeling that television has a much more powerful attraction on Wednesday night than prayer meeting. And the lure of the world has more appeal 
than the service of God. And like a weak, distant signal jammed by a powerful radio station nearby, the Holy Spirit seems barely able to come through compared with the signals that we're getting from the world. But Paul Paul the Apostle says, No, no, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Before we understood the gospel, Paul says, sin, it reigned like a king, beating back the power of grace, just like Saul was kicking against the goads. But when we understand the gospel, grace reigns like a king, and it beats back the power of sin. And this has to be true, because if there is not more power in grace than there is in temptation, John would be wrong when he says, this is the victory that uh, overcometh the world, even our faith. And the gospel could not be good news. Remember, the the battle is never an even match. The battle is never even matched because grace abounds much more. It is literally true that if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 This is not an even match against the temptation of your flesh. Grace is much more powerful You have a new father, so that the the power that is working within you for good is as much stronger than our tendencies to evil as our heavenly father is greater than our earthly parents. The wonderful Bible truth is that God is taking the initiative in saving you. He is not, as many conceive him, just standing back with his divine arms folded in disinterested concern while we wallow around down here in the shadows of misery, he is not saying, well, I did my part long ago. Now it's up to you. You must take the initiative. If you want to be saved, come and work at it and see how you do. And if it seems hard to you and you just don't have what it takes to get to heaven, then I don't care about you. That's not the kind of God we have. No, a thousand times, no. But many feel that way about God. And some who are shy and timid ones think, you know, God does have plenty of good people that are ready to take my place. He doesn't need me. And I'm not really sure he even wants me. But in contrast, Paul wants us to see the divine initiative at work for you. Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering? not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. You, dear heart. Revelation 2, Romans 2, verse 4. And today's English version says that he is trying to lead you to repent. Yes, you. The goodness of God is actually taking you by the hand and leading you toward repentance as surely 
as a fireman tries to lead a victim out of the smoke and the haze of a burning building. And if you do not stubbornly resist, you will be led all the way to heaven. Amen. Sometimes we pray. Sometimes we pray agonizingly for loved ones, for children who have gone astray. Assuming that, oh, we've got to beg God to wake up and somehow reach their hearts and do something. And the idea is that God must be unwilling unless we touch his heart of pity somehow to move him to do something. But, dear friends, the goodness of God is working already before we even pray, leading you and your loved one to repentance. The trouble is that we often thwart what he's trying to do because we haven't understood his goodness. Mercy, his forbearance in their true dimensions. And yet we pile up great stumbling blocks in our loved one's way to heaven. And we don't realize how the selfishness and the inconsistencies that our loved ones see in us, how that is a roadblock to their access to Christ. It obscures God's character to them when you profess to be a Christian. And your life says something completely different. When God all the time is trying to draw them, but your influence is counterproductive to that. It's true that not everybody is going to repent. Why? Because some people despise the goodness of God. True? Stubborn? They break away from that leading. As far back as 1892, a thoughtful writer expressed it this way. It was a tremendous insight. It was expressed well in the little book that Ellen White wrote called Steps to Christ. It's been translated into 101 languages. Here's the statement on page 27. Listen. The sinner may resist this love of God, may refuse to be drawn to Christ, but if he does not resist... He will be drawn to Jesus. A knowledge of the plan of salvation will lead him to the foot of the cross in repentance for his sins. There it is. This principle that we're talking about this morning, that we have a good shepherd who takes the initiative. There it is. Well, it was in the Bible first. She just saw it there. That's a revolutionary idea to many people who've supposed that they must take the initiative, that they must do something if they want to be saved. They must have a saving relationship with God. To them, this idea seems putting the cart before the horse. If we stop resisting, we will be saved. That is the truth of the the matter. But however revolutionary it sounds, I would say that this is pretty good news, wouldn't you? The good news of the gospel presupposes the active and the persistent Agape love of God for your soul. It leaps at you in many beautiful thoughts. Here's one in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, where Paul is giving a little story here. And here's how it reads in the New English Bible. It says, this is what I mean. So long as the heir is a minor or young, younger person, he's no better off than a slave, even though the whole estate is his. He's under guardians and trustees until a date has been fixed by his father. 
And so it was with us. During our minority, we were slaves to the elementary ideas belonging to this world. But when the term was completed, God sent his own son, born of a woman, born under the law, to purchase freedom from the the subjects of the law in order that we might attain the status of sons. The mind-boggling idea disclosed here the reality of God's true character of love. He counts all human beings as potential heirs of the estate. Did you get that? He counts every human being as potential heirs of the estate. But before this faith came to us individually in our experience of comprehension, we're kind of like the millionaire estate owner's barefoot child running around on the estate, but being bossed by the slaves on the estate. But when we come of age, when we grasp the truth by faith, until then we remain prisoners, and the law is our tutor, which is, in the Greek, a slave who conducted children to school, who maneuvers us to the Savior. And what we don't learn easily by faith, by His grace, we learn a harder way by discipline. But all of this infinite loving care is lavished upon us individually in order to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. It's so easy for us naive humans to conceive of the Lord as drawing a circle that shuts out bad people. But that is not true. He draws a big circle big enough to include everybody in this world, and that includes bad people, at least until they shut him out by their never-ending resistance. But the Lord looks upon lost people not as wolves to be shot as soon as possible. Thank God for that. He looks at the lost people as sheep who have wandered away, as potential heirs of his estate. And his grace persists in seeking some way to intrude. What a pity that so many people don't understand this concept, and they consequently treat unsaved people as if they were wolves. The church has hardly begun to love as God loves, wouldn't you say? Being justified by faith is something that nearly staggers one's mind just to realize how wonderful it is. It makes you want to get up on the housetops and shout the good news to everybody. Christ's death on the cross is for every sinner a sacrifice for his or her salvation. God doesn't have a chip on his shoulder against anybody. And this gift is an out of proportion, is completely out of proportion to sin, which is vastly exceeded by the grace of God. Thus, there is no reason why all men should not be saved except they refuse Christ's grace and they spurn the gift of salvation. You know, in this same letter of Romans, Paul goes a step further and he says in Romans 12, 3, that God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Yes. 
dear sinner, God has given to you faith. So God, number one, has brought justification for all men by the sacrifice of his son. Two, he has given every man the measure of faith to appropriate that justification for himself personally, to know the pardon for sin. Would that everybody said yes and exercise the faith that's already given to him. Amen. What more could God do? What more? It all adds up to the conclusion that if anyone is lost at last, it will be because of his or her own persistent rejection of what God has already done to save him. And if anyone is saved, it will be because he stopped resisting God's initiative in saving him or her. C.S. Lewis expresses this idea in his book, The Great Divorce. He puts it into a parable. He imagines the holy city to be just a bus ride from hell. And all that are in hell who wish to move to heaven are welcome. Well, there's a bunch of people in hell who get on board the bus for the trip to heaven to just visit and see what heaven is like. And when they come to visit, they can't stand the place. Even the blades of grass in the heavenly New Jerusalem are like knives that are cutting into their feet. They want to board the bus right back to hell as soon as possible. Dear friends, it is the lost themselves who cut themselves out of heaven. It's not any arbitrary decree or act on the part of God, but by their own chosen inability to be happy there that they end up outside of the city of Jerusalem. You know, in the final analysis, therefore, whether one is saved or lost depends on his choice, the response he chooses to give to that which God has already done in the light of the love of God revealed at the cross, even the choice to be saved becomes easy. Granted, if we eclipse the cross of Christ, we must admit that it becomes terribly hard to follow Christ. If we blot out the cross, then it becomes impossible to be saved. The springs of motivation just dry up. The temptations to evil just become overpowering in their appeal if we blot out the cross. The Savior then becomes like some dry stick out of the ground, and Jesus' gospel contains no beauty in it that we should even desire him. But if we can see the unadulterated grace of Christ, that choice to bear the cross then becomes easy. The love of Christ constrains the one who appreciates what he has done and chooses to respond What part do we have to do? Someone says, didn't Jesus say, well, you've got to strive to enter into the straight gate there in Luke chapter 13, 24. Aren't we to be striving against sin? Hebrews 12, 4, yes. There are indeed endless conflicts with temptation. We are soldiers in a battle, as we sang earlier in Sabbath school, but the point is that we never have to fight the battle alone. We are joined, remember, in a yoke with Jesus Christ. He does the pulling. He is the big ox. 
and we just follow and don't resist him and drag our feet. We cooperate with him. We stop resisting. That's why Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The word let means allow it. Don't hinder it. The part we have to do is tremendously important, for God isn't going to force anyone to be saved against his or her will. Our part in salvation is just neatly set forth. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let it rule. Allow it. To the which also ye are called in one body. Colossians says, let the word of God, Christ, dwell in you richly in all wisdom. It's as though God takes you by the hand and he tugs, saying, come on, come on. Let's you and me go to heaven. Okay? And I'll be your guide. Don't resist him. Don't squirm away from him. Follow him. It, it, it is a joy for a pupil to have a good teacher who makes the learning process easy. Have you ever had a teacher like that in your educational experience? Didn't you just love him or her? I didn't like those teachers that were all theoretical, didn't, you know, use big words, and I just couldn't figure out at all where they were going. But I loved the teacher that made it so that I could understand it. And I wanted to follow that teacher. That's how Jesus is. See, our Savior is a teacher. And here's what it says about him being our teacher in Titus 2.11. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And that word, no uh, no way, seems to be the hardest word maybe ever pronounced, but even here, God does not abandon you to stumble along on your own until you say it right. The grace of God will teach you to say what to ungodliness and the things of this world. The grace of God will teach you to say no. No. That's scriptural. Purify us. Our own individual effort, of course, useless apart from the grace of Christ. But if we don't lose sight of Jesus being with us, our part is always easy. Let's think about Jesus' part just for a moment. Was it easy for Jesus to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and face down bearing all of the sin of the world? Was it easy for Jesus for him to go to his cross? No way was it easy for Jesus. He had a very stern battle with self in the garden. On the cross, it was so severe, we're told that he sweat, sweat great drops of blood Even his very heart was rupturing in his final agony. Does that mean that he was telling us to lie when he said, my burden is easy? No, he wasn't telling us to lie. The burden 
that Jesus speaks of is simply the burden that we carry. His was infinitely heavy. The burden that we carry of our sin compared to what he bore for the whole world, his was infinite. Ours is very light in comparison. But he says, I want to take your burden because now my burden is light. I have defeated that sin that is in you. You know what the lockup of sin is, don't you? Sin leads to death, doesn't it? And so sin is the toxic disease that Satan has injected into everyone because he wants to lock you up in the grave forever and close the door, turn the key, and throw the key away forever. Well, Jesus went to that lockup. And the devil thought he had him now, and he threw the key away. But the reason why the grave could not hold Jesus is why. Because personally, he had never caved into sin. And you can't, the grave cannot hold a sinless life as Jesus lived it. And therefore, he conquered sin and the grave and burst forth in the resurrection. Now, if Jesus has that power to overcome sin, that sin which tempts you so powerfully, can he not overcome that sin in your life by the same power of the resurrection today? Amen. Amen. He can. And by that blood, he purifies your life. Your life has been filled with the toxins of sin. And he proposes to purify your life from sin. You know, when we go out hiking in the wilderness, all the water that's available to us is what's flowing in the streams out there. They don't have city systems there that we can draw on when we go hiking. And so we're warned, all right? You want to purify that water before you drink it because there's little tiny microbes in there that if you drink it, it can produce giardia in your system. And it's going to really jerk around with you for a long time. You may not be able to get rid of it. So always take along with you a filtration system or some iodine tablets that you can pop into your water bottle that'll kill all of those little bugs that are in the water. You know, Jesus is the iodine tablet injected into your system as a healing stream to cure you of the toxic disease of sin. And his blood, the cross, is the great motivator to help you choose to let him do the heavy lifting in delivering you from the power of sin. The gospel works. The gospel brings us into harmony with all of the commandments of God. No way do we want to teach the devil's gospel that the commandments can't be kept. Because the whole purpose of the gospel is to bring us into harmony with God's character and with his law. The Bible teaches that he who abides in him does not sin. Can a person who is abiding in God live sin, a sin, sinning life? Can a person who is abiding in God live a sinning life? If you have the life of God living in you, 
There's no way. They're completely incompatible. Amen? God invites you to remain where he has already placed you in Christ and allow his life to flow through you. And you will not have a life of habitual sinning. He will purify you unto himself and prepare you for his second coming. He wants every one of you when he comes to visit. He wants every one of you in his family. That's my prayer. That's his prayer. Amen. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.